namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sangang namasa four foundations of mindfulness the most common translation for the um, Pali word Satipatthana, it's the Satipatthana Sutta, is the most, perhaps the most um, well-known and used recorded teaching from the Pali Canon um, of the Buddha about meditation. Together with perhaps with the Anapanasati Sutta, which is about mindfulness of breathing, and the the two actually overlap because uh, well to start with the first foundation of mindfulness first foundation is mindfulness of the body and that section of the of the of the discourse has um, offers various contemplations and practices to do with the body focusing on the body and the very first one is about mindfulness of breathing. So uh, mindfulness of breathing is, of course, one form of um, using the body as a, as a foundation or establishment for our attention, for mindfulness practice, because breathing is a bodily process. In fact, in some places, the Buddha also called breathing the body conditioner, that which, which conditions the body. So very, obviously very important. Um, physical process and so the very first oh yes I was just gonna say I just said isn't it the first section of this part that speaks about the body is about mindfulness of breathing and it is exactly the same way in which also the discourse on the mindfulness of breathing starts it has the same start and it has it's it says a calm four kind of steps to it, so it's called the tetrad. And so, and what it says, basically, is the instruction to know that if you are breathing in short, that you are breathing in short. And if you're breathing out short, that you're breathing out short. And if you're breathing in long, to know that you're breathing in long. And if you're breathing out long, to know that you're breathing out long. So that's two first two steps and then the third one says um, to train yourself I shall train myself uh, while I'm breathing in and while I'm breathing out to know to be aware of the whole body it says and then the fourth one I train myself while breathing in and breathing out to calm the um, I think it can be translated as a body formation or the, even like the body conditioner. Um, so those are the four steps. And that's all, in fact, that the Buddha mentions there about how to practice mindfulness of breathing. And that's also the only thing he says in the, in the discourse, the whole discourse that is dedicated to mindfulness of breathing. Because, and that's the way in which how often actually the Buddha's different teachings kind of wonderfully kind of interlap and refer back to themselves in the discourse of mindfulness of breathing after these first four steps 
It has also, same as the four foundation of mindfulness, it has four sections, and the other three sections are precisely about how you can practice the other three foundations of mindfulness while using mindfulness of breathing. So they are actually very nicely interrelated. It's interesting to look at those two discourses in, in connection. So in the end, anyway, this is all we have. And as far as I know, the Buddha doesn't actually say very much, if anything, more specific about how to actually use the breath or do breath meditation anywhere else in the suttas. And as you notice, it's not actually very much. It's not that specific. And if you have come across books on Buddhism and meditation, <laughs> as most Westerners have a lot, <laughs> find out you know, how to do it. And you'll see, of course, that different teachers and scholars have interpreted this little section in many, many different ways and have actually elaborated on it and created all kinds of systems about you know, how to actually do this for simple, apparently simple instructions, simple steps. And um, the thing is, sure, as they are fairly um, kind of reduced, we cannot know really um, whether maybe the Buddha, in his, when he was alive, did actually give more detailed instructions to his disciples, and they just haven't been recorded. This is just what, you know, after 2,500 years, this is what we are left with. Uh, or whether deliberately he left it quite open. Um, we haven't got the Buddha around to ask him. Um, so I certainly, well, you know, over the years, obviously, I've, I've read lots of different and heard you know, different takes and interpretations on it. And I would think you can actually make inferences from it, um, quite different kind of inferences based on common sense that, that might, you know, that, that, you know, you can go, you inter can interpret it in, in different kind of ways. And hopefully, you don't, you know, it's not just, of course, intellectual interpretations, but, you know, interpretations that you then put into practice and check out whether it actually makes sense in, in terms of practice, whether it brings good results, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> So, for a start, certainly some things that we can see are quite, quite is, is interesting. If you just take the first two steps, they don't specify any more, they, or they're specific in that sense, that they're just, just saying to just know, you know if you're breathing in or breathing out, and basically what's the quality of your breath is. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say where you're supposed to observe your breath. It doesn't say you're supposed to notice the air coming in and out of the nostrils or that you shouldn't do that or that you should notice your, the, the, your, your belly kind of moving with the inner brows or anything else. It just says, well, know if you're breathing in or if you're breathing out. So as far as I'm concerned from my experience and reflection, I find it most useful to take it quite literally and so often um, as you might remember, like if I do guided meditations, I recommend really to ask yourself at the beginning of your practice, if you want to use mindfulness of breathing, how do you know that you're breathing right now? No. So that's quite on purpose, that kind of question and the suggestion to drop. Um, anyway, I mean, this is my take, no? this is one suggestion, you know, to drop any kind of preconceived ideas that we have about what we're supposed to be doing 
what we're supposed to be feeling, where we are supposed to observe the breath. And to just, uh, because there's a danger, of course, that we actually have this idea which we then impose on our actual reality, what we're actually experiencing, right? Because we already come in with an idea. Instead, you just ask yourself a question. How do I know that I'm breathing right now? Hmm. And then you listen to your experience. So that would be, hopefully, I mean, that's the first response, isn't it? If you ask yourself a question, okay, how do I know? Well, I find out, isn't it? How do I find out? I pay attention to what I'm actually experiencing right now. No? <laughs> and so then we allow ourselves actually to be informed from our, by our experience rather than by some kind of view or something that we read in a book, you know, or some, some opinion by some teacher or another, some external authority or something that we come up with ourselves. We just listen to experience. And it doesn't, of course, have to be the same for everybody. And even for just uh, one body. <laughs> Uh, somebody, it doesn't have to be uh, the same all the time. No, if you just ask yourself right now, your attention might feel attracted to a particularly, particular part of your body in which you most clearly feel the experience of breathing. And it doesn't always have to be the same. No, and why should it? No. Um, Okay, I mean, so one can maybe mount an argument for why maybe, you know, obviously, why to choose a particular point and be consistent or something. I can probably, I can follow that. But, you know, this is my take, and I think there's some good reasons, which more or less I just touched upon, why maybe not to do that, you know, so, so that we don't force something onto our experience, but we actually go directly, we train ourselves in listening to our experience as it actually is. And then you find out, you know. And then... Um, it says this, then it, it, there's the other element in it. It's just talking about to know whether you're breathing in, whether you're breathing in or out. You know, that's mentioned, and whether you're breathing in short or long. Now, personally, I, I feel it's safe to just assume that that's just an example for to to look at actually be interested in the quality of our breath. You know, that you can extend that, as usual people do, of course, to know whether you're breathing in and out long or short, deep or shallow, what else, fast or slow, whether your breath is smooth or whether it's um, rough, you know, whether it's kind of constant or whether it's changing all the time. So basically take some interest in the quality of your breath. And that's all about the first two things, two, two steps say, isn't it? Just to be aware of that. It's just a way of listening to our experience. It's just the first suggestion. So we're making some initial contact. Contact with what? With, with one aspect of experience, which is what is actually happening right now. We're noticing, we're having some interest to examine, well, how it is right now. Then it changes. The, third, the fourth step starts with this um, word, the English translation is kind of training. So there's, there's a bit more than just observing, just listening. So there's actually something, the suggestion to do something about it. Uh, first, an expansion to experience the whole body. So again, what take I from the notice is uh, note. So mindfulness practice, the way the Buddha teaches it in the, in the context for foundations of mindfulness, is not just about being passively aware, kind of non-judgmental awareness, and this, that is it. No, there are throughout that discourse and in various places there are suggestions, suggestions that go beyond that. Certainly, that aspect, the possibility of just listening to our experience without any further agenda, just being curious, being interested, witnessing our experience. It's certainly a quality that is, that 
attention, conscious attention, presence of mind, mindfulness, sati, offers, and that is mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta as something that's beneficial and to do, but that's not the only thing it talks about. No? It doesn't just talk about non-judgmental, passive kind of awareness in, in observation in the present moment. So here, it includes the idea of training, training to feel the whole body. Now again, that's, that's what the Pali says, and it's not very much, and people have interpreted that in different ways. Um, I find that different interpretations make sense to me, and they also don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, if you do come across interpretations, I, one thing I can just share that I'm wary of is if I... Uh, some of them seem to me more commonsensical than others. Some I'm really puzzled about what some people come with, what this is supposed to mean, the whole body, uh, which to me seems to turn the meaning of the plain language right on its head, which I immediately become suspicious of. And I'm suspicious of, of people who come across with great conviction to saying this is what it really means and all other interpretations therefore are wrong. Um, now we've got different attitudes to those, you know, uh, spiritual or technical certainties. But um, I find, well, first of all, it says the body, so being aware of the whole body. So what's wrong with that? That sounds like a good idea to me in general, so I'm quite happy to stay with that. Some people like to specify that it refers to the breath as a body. The breath, of course, you can also look at as a, as a body. It's, it's a body of its own nature, the breast body. And like this, for example, to me, uh, ultimately, I don't have to make an exclusive decision whether it's one or the other, because from practice experience, um, it certainly makes, both make sense to me, and it makes sense to me if you initially start to pick up the experience of breathing maybe in some part of your body, that it makes sense we can go in different directions from there, try experiment with different modes of attention, but it makes sense to at some point train yourself to expand your awareness of the whole process of breathing. No? In other words, to experience the whole body of the breath, no? the whole of the breath, as much as you can actually pick up from what is the actually felt experience of breathing. No? Um, one of the things, because we might, of course, find out the, the more actually pay attention to my aspects of it, the more we can actually explore and find out maybe interesting, useful things about it. Um, also, because by the nature, if we expand our attention of the process of breathing in the body, hopefully, I would think we, we, we start to become more and more sensitive to the fact how much of the body is actually involved in the process of breathing. You know, this is not something that just happens in your nose. It's not something that only you notice in your lungs. Or you know, it's also, of course, the belly is affected. Eventually you notice, you know, this, if you go into this more subtle sensations, you know, more and more of your body, some, you notice how it's affected by the breath until literally you realize that the whole body, including your fingers and your toes, are in some way involved with this process of breathing, at least in the sense that in as much as the breath is a form of, well, it, of energy for the body, it, it provides the body with energy, 
it, that energy affects the whole body, and we can start to notice that. You know? And this is all connected to actually this interest in looking into, well, how does it actually an in-breath feel like? And how does an out-breath feel like? And how far does it extend? And where do I notice that? You know? And that becomes very useful, of course, in various ways in, when I start to extend that. And these two concepts as experience actually merge when I start to realize the whole body of the breath is actually also the whole body. You know, once it extends to the whole body, it means I'm also aware of the whole body. You know? So then the two things are actually not different anymore. And that uh, brings me back to a few things that I suggested earlier when I did the guided meditations about how one of or some of the many reasons why we choose the breath. Of course, we don't have to choose the breath. It's just, it's just one um, object of meditation that the Buddha offered. But I think for a reason, it's the one that seems to be almost prominent in the sutta. In the suttas, and also the one that seems to have become early on kind of the most commented upon, the most practiced, I suppose, and up, you know, until now being the most popular um, form of practicing meditation, is because it is, it's so useful in so many ways. And one is because, for the reason why the Buddha also shows the breath as an example when he was talking about kaya sankaras, which means can, can be translated as kaya as body. Sankara can mean many things, but in this case kind of conditioner, that which conditions the body. The breath conditions the body. No? And one of the ways of, to, to look at it is, is in, in looking at it in terms of the energy that it provides to the body and how we can use that in our meditation no? when we start to actually notice the breath. So, on the first two steps, we're just listening into the breath and we notice the quality of the breath. But then I was also one, suggesting before, one way we can actually use the information that we get is if we notice the state of our mind, our levels of energy, what our mind is actually doing as we're trying to be with our meditation object. Um, for example, we might notice that we are tired and sleepy and so we're trying to listen to fairly neutral, perhaps, refined sensation like the breath. You know, maybe we have been attracted to those sensations at the nostrils, you know, and you notice them in, out, in, out, and you're gone. Light goes out, you know. And then a few minutes later, you just come to and say, oh, yeah, 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 but breathing, breathing. Oh, yeah, nostril, uh, one, two, gone again, you know. Or it's the other way around. The mind is just so busy with, with all kinds of other things that it just can't settle down on something so subtle, it just keeps slipping off. You know? Well, so then what to do? You know? So one thing I, that I mentioned is we can choose to more, get more actively interested and engaged with the process of breathing rather than just passively listening to it, like the first two steps kind of suggest. We can use the fact that the breath is a body conditioner to actually um, influence our levels of energy in the body, and as the body and mind are, of course, very closely interrelated, therefore it's the energy in the mind, the state of our mind. You know? And it even helps with the posture. So if I choose to really start to feel the breath, and so often, you know, but if we are, if we are tired, there's not much energy there, not much wakefulness, 
how does that express itself in our body posture, particularly if you're not paying attention? We're just going down, isn't it? We're just sitting a bit like maybe like this, you know, or um, you know, somehow we crumple up. You know, it's a bit. I would like to use the the image of the of the Mickey Mouse balloon. No, if you if you get a Mickey Mouse balloon from the from the how's it called from the fun fair or something. No, and if there's not enough air in it, you know, what what does happen? You know, all the features of the Mickey Mouse just go kind of they crumple up. No, so now if you blow air into that balloon, what happens? No, Mickey Mouse comes up. No, the ears come up, bonk, you know, the, the ears. <laughs> and so, and the same, you know, you can do, think of yourself as a Mickey Mouse balloon, you know, uh, that hasn't got enough air in it. Well, what do you need? More air, more oxygen, you know. So, well, what's the thing to do? Well, breathe a bit more deeply, you know, a bit more consciously. So, you really start to feel, and you don't just do a little bit kind of boop, 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 subtle breathing, which is very nice when the mind is fine-tuned and really concentrated, then, oh, of course, you don't need more than that, and it's actually... The more refined the breath, the more refined the meditation object, the, the, the more refined your mind can actually go with the very pleasant. But if you're not there, you know, if the energy isn't balanced, if you're too restless or if you're too tired or sleepy, it's not going to work. No? So you need a bit more energy. You need to put the volume up, you know, the, put the light switch, by the way, <laughs> have a bit more light. No? Um, so then you breathe more deeply. So you said very consciously, like, um, yeah, I, I like to do that. You're starting with the first sensation. Maybe for me it's like that. For you, might be different. Find out how it works for you. You know, first bit of in breath maybe goes down here in the belly. You know, so a little lifting of the the skin, and I notice that. And then, but then I I intentionally don't just stay down there with my intention, and I ex, I extend consciously the breathing, and I'm, I'm going up. Up is a good idea anyway if you want to sit upright. No, rather than going down, go up. No? <laughs> so I start at the bottom. So I start here, so Mickey Mouse, you know, the belly comes out, right, and I said, oh, so what happens actually above it? So the, the lungs, they go all the way up here, isn't it? So I go upwards with my attention in the body, as I, as I imagine, that my lungs are filling up with air, and then I start to feel, okay, so now the, the, the rib cage is starting to grow as well, no? And where does it actually go? Pay attention, listen to experience, right? Don't just do something, but listen to what, what you're actually doing. Okay, so then I notice it grows sideways, actually, you know? Starting to breathe, not just here, but breathe into the sides, you no? Know? Need some air here as well, and then you grow. And then it goes up, the chest comes out, and oh, wow. And I notice, actually, the lungs are not just up here, they're also in the back. So you notice, actually, the back is growing too, you know? And the shoulders coming out, you no? Know? So, so what happens, you know? You're coming up, you know? Shoulders coming out, and wow, wow, you know? Boop, boop, you know? Any moment, you're going <laughs> to... Float off, you know. The head comes up, right. And so you can actually use your breath, just a full in-breath, to actually lift up your posture, rather than trying to strain your muscles and to sit upright. Just use the breath, just natural. Just by opening up the lungs, you're taking up volume. And the thing is, the body then doesn't just strain to sit upright. It grows into all directions. And that's a very nice thing, uh, particularly for many of us, to counterbalance the tendencies that we might have um, as a friend once skillfully pointed out to me, um, who does you know body work and always feels a lot of pain when he sits in the back and sees how we sit meditating, <laughs> and he observed that he thinks a lot of meditators think, well, I'm meditating now, so I'm shutting out the bad, noisy, bad old world out there, and I'm going inwards, right? I'm going inwards. 
right? And I'm hiding from the world, you know, shutting it all out. And then immediately, of course, the energy goes down. You know? if, you've got, if you're tired already and then you sit like this, there's not much energy moving, isn't it? So it's a safe recipe for going to sleep, which does shut the world out, but it's not really um, what we, I hope, what we want to do this for. So instead, this helps you to come up. And, wait, and obviously, if you sit straight, just by paying attention to sitting straight, and particularly if you do that with the breath, which is energy, it helps you to wake up. It helps you to wake up. And so my suggestion, Rory, is, you know, don't try and be small when you meditate. You know? Try and sit big. Take up space. You know, this is a big room, and there are only 30 of us or so, so there's lots of space. Nobody's going to hit you on the head if you sit a bit larger, you know. So take up space, you know, be present. You know, pre being present means filling out your space. Be, be here, you know, don't hide. You know, really sit here. And so this is something where we can actually use the, the, the breath quite consciously. You know, remember, the breath is a body conditioner. And then the, the, the body conditions the mind. And so we started a positive feedback loop, isn't it? Once the mind wakes up, it helps the body, of course, again. Mm. So that's one of the things that why, why, like, you know, to, with the meditation instructions, which I then often tend to, I try to do myself, or, or particularly, yeah, at the beginning of the meditation, whenever I find, you know, that I'm, I'm just, I'm just, it's not really working, which is most of the time. <laughs> you know, I'm just somewhere in the foggy kind of space or whatever. You know, just just try that. You know, get really more consciously into the body like that. So breathing in, going up, taking up space, and notice how that is energizing. Really be conscious of the energy and feel the energy in the body. And then what happens next? Another thing that we can become aware of: what happens at the end of an in-breath. Do you immediately breathe out again, or is there a pause? First element just to notice. If you do breathe out immediately again, at least the suggestion for experimenting, well, how about trying to introduce a pause? You know, once you're breathing in, you know, just hold it for a little while and just feel how it feels, you know, having all this, taking in all this oxygen and allow it actually really to move around the energy, however you feel that in the body, feel your whole body sitting large, and then let the air out again. And so usually on the out breath, and I try to, try to um, focus on relaxing. And for me, then usually if I'm breathing in, and my, my, my attention, we said, usually tends to kind of move from the belly up and a bit outwards, and I'm feeling all the body. And sometimes literally I go up with my attention on the front, and then on the out breath I go down on the back and try to relax try to relax, you know, with any tension that I notice. Because if you do breathe in large and really feel kind of the uprightness, that's something that can, of course, happen. You might start to feel upright, but it might be a little bit tense, you know, you just up here, you know, wow, wow, you know, how far up can I get? <laughs> and so then it's nice, then, of course, then consciously actually use the out-breath to relax, but without collapsing. You know, try, so try to stay big, but relax within that, in that large frame if you're sitting posture with the out-breath. Mm. So, and then, you know, again, don't, that's of course just also something, it's a tool, something that we can use at a time. It's not, it's, uh, it's good to have different 
tools and to diff try different things at different times. It doesn't always have to be what we do or what we need to do. We don't have to turn that, like anything else, into a rigid system. Sometimes, particularly maybe on a retreat, you might sit down and you notice some, your mind immediately settles, so it's already very calm and stable and, and, and you just notice the breath and oh, it's just really nice to just be with the sensation of the breath, even if it's very subtle. Then, of course, it would be foolish then to impose some rigid kind of intentional large kind of breathing, you know, if that's, that's not actually asked for, if you feel it's actually quite nice, you're quite awake, quite present, that in itself, and something just having the, the, if, the intention, if the intention really sticks and merges with the object, that itself becomes, can become, of course, a source of wonderful kind of balance and wakeful energy. So you don't actually, if you just, if you get too much into doing then, you're rather destroying that because it's a bit too coarse. But that's something throughout a meditation, when you meditate, something to gauge. You know, why again, why I, I, I'd like to emphasize that listening to your experience is the most important aspect of meditation. You know? Because that might, of course, work for a while, but also, you know, if you lose it and if you keep losing it, then it precisely might not just be a question about thinking, oh, yeah, my mind got hijacked again, just go back to the breath. That might not be enough. You know? If your energy isn't clear or strong enough, we might just need to be a bit, do a bit more to allow our attention then actually to stick with the breath. And then let it take you on a journey, see where it goes. You know, at some point, you might feel things you know, settle quite nicely, you know, the energy just hums along and becomes more refined. Your natural will modify the kind of effort that you're making and just feel, well, you know, I don't need all this breath anymore, you know, I don't need all this intentional interference, I just want to kind of settle more, become more subtle. Oh, yeah. Allowed to go for that. And you just keep adjusting you know, the way that you um, make your effort according to what your reading of your situation is. <clears throat> and we can or sometimes we can combine the various of those techniques. You know? And I mean I find certainly for me or over the years different techniques that I come across and heard about and um, I do use different ones or some at different times and sometimes surprise myself. You know, I'm starting to use a technique which for years I just maybe told people that, well, this one, I'm just teaching it for completeness, but I, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> like, for example, counting the breaths. You know, it's something I, I usually I mention at some point in, in, a, in a retreat, but I, I don't really do that because I find counting really boring and, and it just doesn't, doesn't really do it for me. But more recently, I suddenly found myself starting to count my breaths and it worked very nice, thank you. So then I said, well, okay, well, you know, just if it works, <laughs> just do it, no? But then also, just to give you an example, no, how you need to adjust those things for yourself. Well, I always had heard and read about counting up to 10 and back down to one. And so that's what I tried to do but I'm an impatient kind of character. And if, I, if I'm with my breath and I'm starting one, you know, and, I've, and particularly I take a long breath, and long out breath, slowing down my breath, you know, which is nice, and, and 10 is a long way to count up. And it's funny how kind of immediately I start to speed up. I start to speed up my breathing. I mean, you might find it's, it's ridiculous, but that's what I do. Impulsively, I start to speed up my breathing. That's, of course, not useful, isn't it? Um, and so that's one of the reasons. So I thought, well, this obviously doesn't work for me uh, because I cannot just relax and stay with experience. I'm already trying to reach 10, you know. I want to get there quicker. 
But more recently, I've just realized, well, I just, I just tried out just counting to five instead of to 10. And it's interesting, it's a totally different effect. Because particularly if like what I like to do, what, or what I tend to do is, is counting up and then back down again. So it's one, two, three, four, five. Four, three, two, one. Two, three, four, five. It's even shorter, isn't it? Because you're always counting back and forth. Always on the outrest. It's actually very quick to get to five. So if anything, I'd rather <laughs> I slow down, <laughs> you know, and which is much nicer, of course, in effect. So I just, just almost by accident, I just found it out, found out that if I do counting, it's counting to five, works for me much better than counting to ten, no, at least at the moment. So then, okay, and then I just, I just count to five. Mm. And sometimes. Also, it works in for me, or sometimes, I mean, I have a very busy mind. Um, so sometimes I even, for ta at times, I'm using a, a combination of, of two or three techniques at the same time. You know, sometimes you just need to give your mind, you know, really something to do, you know, in order to engage it. So say I do, I do, what I prefer is usually di direct attention to the body. So something physically, you're really getting with my attention to the body and then just moving with the breath and what I first said, you know, just breathing consciously, maybe moving up and down and maybe out, you know, with the, with the out breath. But sometimes if that's not enough, then I, well, say I combine that certainly with the breathing, I do all that, but then also at the end, I make a mental note, you know, one, and then the next one, two. And sometimes even, you know, <laughs> to give it a little bit more than I, I just, just to put a bit of matter in there as well, because, um, I rarely do actually uh, the formal meta meditation myself, the way that I did the guided meditation before. It's just something I, for some reason, I don't. But I do certainly. I'm. I tend to pay, try to pay attention to that quality in itself. You know, I feel that's, as I mentioned before, an unobstructed mind. This quality of kindness should always be there. It's kind of a base quality of an unobstructed heart. So if it's not there, something is obstructed. You no. Know? So also if you do meditation or yourself for it to work well, some quality of kindness of the basic underlying kindness you know, that your space of presence is actually a kind space of presence is, a, is obviously a very useful quality to have there. You know, kindness is one of those useful, helpful qualities in meditation. So I try to pay attention to that in general, you know, just to mindfulness of breathing. You know, am I doing that? as some kind of competition or out of kind of routine or duty or as a sense of gentleness, kindness, friendliness with it. So again, I like to combine that often more, not so much on a, on a conceptual level, like repeating those phrases or imagining people or something like that. But again, I'll, I'll, personally, for me, it works best if I just relate to it in a physical sense so that particularly when I'm breathing out and I, I focus on relaxation, I, I Imagine or try to feel almost like a kind energy in that outbreath. You know, and I'm trying to breathe out through the whole body. It's almost like I feel sometimes if I consciously try to add that, I imagine I'm spreading, you know, emitting, you know, <laughs> uh, kindness, kind energy, kind of out of me. And that can be very nice. It's just a very nice thing to do. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, and sometimes it just helps, you know, to have a few of the things, you know, putting this, this kind of together gives you kind of, you know, if, if just one technique doesn't have enough traction, you know, just, just put a few more ingredients in there. 
Um, and then sometimes, of course, uh, it comes the, the, the point where obviously kind of techniques and trying this and that is just not useful anymore if, if this thing, if, if you know, the, the attention really starts to stay willingly with what we're paying attention to and, and the, the, the listening to experience is fine-tuned, it just starts to take care of itself, isn't it? It's, we, we, it's, it's better to get our hands out, you know, <laughs> because it's like, you know, you're starting one of those old-fashioned motors at the beginning, you have to make some effort, but once it gets going, no, you take your hands out of it. <laughs> you don't want to interfere with it, and you just, oh, you just, um, you just um, rest more, as they say, in this sense of awareness and, and um, observing, listening to experience. So uh, then we are there with, it, with that all different ways you know, of being there with, the, with, with experiencing the whole body of the breath and what do you mean the whole body? Part for why that is important to me to arrive there, certainly at some point in our practice, is that it suggests inclines towards an inclusive practice. Um, one where we are willing to keep included all of our experience, in the sense, you know, all of our physical experience, all of our body, with everything that's going on there, including uh, pain in the knee, discomfort in the back, or uneasy feelings, emotions that appear. I think there is certainly the, the danger uh, in an exclusive concentration practice, if I, if I just focus more and more narrowly down on one particular aspect, the subtle sensation of the breath, let's say at the nostrils, it's one that perhaps for most people, you know, when the mind really does settle, works best because it's a very subtle, nice, and becomes a very pleasant sensation, so it, it lends itself for a very refined kind of type of attention. They can, of course, be very pleasant if the mind really settles on that and becomes quite, you know, a beautiful little space to actually absorb into. But this can, I think, sometimes promote tendencies, if they have them, of trying to get rid of parts of our experience that we don't like. No, so subtle, or sometimes not so subtle, tendencies to aversion or denial. No, so if you get good at that, at controlling our attention, you know, we can just, it's almost like we disappear into the rabbit hole, isn't it? We just, you know, the body bothers me here and there and these thoughts and these emotions, and, but I can actually, if I'm good, particularly if I've got a you know, strong and functional kind of willpower and I can actually hold my attention there on that bit, which is actually neutral or even pleasant of my breath, and keep pushing those other distractions aside, finally they're going to disappear, and I'm just going to be safe. And that can be certainly very, very peaceful and maybe very beautiful, and sometimes, and to a certain extent, also quite useful. But as I said, there is this danger in it, isn't it, that it, it starts to become, maybe without us noticing, actually, a tool again with which we can manipulate our experience according to our preferences. No? Going for that, creating a little island for ourselves which is pleasant, where we can escape to from all the vicissitudes of life. No? Get stressed out again and, and just go to my little samadhi 
space, and for a while I'm fine, and that's good. But then I come out, out again, <laughs> of course, and I'm going to have to deal with the world again. And sometimes even you have this. I mean, people, of course, deal differently with these things, but some, the worst thing sometimes can happen when you become a meditation addict or retreat addict, you know, when you mean feeling you're getting actually very good at it, but actually then the anything that's outside of that beautiful space becomes more and more unbearable, and you actually start to feel you become more and more unbalanced, you become more and more dependent on getting back into this space. Which is, of course, which might be very nice, but it's still a conditioned space that depends on your ability to actually reconstruct it and re-enter it. No? So it's not safe. And what happens, and it does happen, of course, when suddenly you can't do it anymore. It's actually great. <laughs> but it doesn't feel great. You know, suddenly this refuge is gone. You know? And then despair kicks in, isn't it? You can't escape anymore. Well, then finally you're going to have to actually face your suffering and work on, on understanding. You know? Remember, I mean, the Buddha's path is a wisdom path. It's not a concentration path. Concentration has its part in it. But the freedom from suffering comes through understanding how we are creating it. And for that, we're going to, first of all, be willing to be with it and understand it, to actually face it you know, and look into it. So I think this, uh, uh, this suggestion to experience the whole body is very useful, and I suspect it's there for good reason. The Buddha knew, trust what he was talking about and why. No, because it will more promote actually the cap capacity to actually skillfully deal with anything that's going on in your body, body and mind in its relationship. So that if you do come to a place of more settledness and deeper calm and collectedness, no, the attention being actually collected and becoming peaceful and increasingly pleasant, the whole body is actually included in it. Meaning either um, which does can happen through the purification of attention and the way you receive your body, the mind becoming settled with the body. Actually, the nature of the experience of your body changes um, and you manage actually to become truly comfortable in the whole body, which is of course very nice, <laughs> which can happen when the mind settles. You know, uh, previously, bothersome sensations just disappear or get transformed or just become more light, more transparent. Um, or if not that, that at least you are, the, even if the pain and discomfort is still there and is recognized, but it doesn't bother the mind anymore. But it's different from it doesn't bother me anymore because I found a way to actually escape from it and not having to feel it anymore because I'm staying in my little rabbit hole. But it has to do with because I changed my relationship to it. I don't create suffering around it anymore. So that implies actually a much more useful, deeper understanding. And if that leads actually to the mind to settle a bit more, so it's, it's, it's much more wholesome, I would suggest, and organic, um, kind of collectedness which is supported by understanding and it, which will support also understanding, which is what, uh, according to the Buddha, all this practice is actually aiming towards and what also our samadhi, the collectedness of attention, is supposed to help us with. So, and on that note, uh, it is actually the fact that whenever the Buddha in the suttas talks about the deeper states of collectedness that, according to him, most possibly, and they had a certain kind of standard formula, elaborating on them, the, the first four 
steps, which are usually called, some of you are familiar with this term of the first the four jhanas or the, the, the four absorptions, the um, illustrations that he used for them, examples to illustrate this, this, um, these beautiful states of mind, always, without exception, included the whole body. I think now, probably for a good reason. So quite literally was saying like, on, on all of those steps, like the bliss or the peace that you're experiencing in this state of mind is experienced in the whole body, is suffusing the whole body. You know? Again, it suggests that with this right kind of collectedness, right samadhi that Buddha was talking about, you're taking actually the whole body with you into that experience. You know? So again, it's the, the difference between the basic attitude of this being more an inclusive kind of practice, an embracing kind of practice, we are taking actually, we are becoming actually peaceful with our experience. Now that immediately suggests to me something much more wholesome, uh, far-reaching, stable, useful, than we're getting into peace by excluding our experience, excluding part of our experience that is troublesome. You know? Which is of course one of the, the modes with which our unenlightened mind is dealing with the unpleasant already anyway. You know? It's called denial. <laughs> or or there are other versions, isn't of compartmentalization, there's another, you know, things like that, which are things that in the end tend to lead us into trouble, isn't it? Because these things, if we haven't actually looked at them, if we haven't dealt with them, we haven't solved them. And they're going to keep, in some way or another, subtly or not so subtly, run our life, particularly if you're not aware of them, if you don't pay attention to them. No. This is still where the suffering is going to be, sometimes maybe hiding, sometimes it becomes visible, but it's, it remains active. So you want to pay attention to that. And if it doesn't lead to, you know, this more inclusive kind of practice, if it doesn't lead to deeper states of calm, well, then not to worry about it. It just means, well, okay, we are maybe not ready that. There'd be a good reason because there's all this stuff that maybe we still need to work on. So not to be impatient, not to just try to jump ahead and force some kind of state of calm because that's what we're craving. We're just giving back in into the, 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 the... the craving of the mind, which is the source of suffering. No? So we make making necessarily, we make a meditation a source of suffering. No? For a while we might think it's a safe, it might become a, a, a source of bliss if our willfulness is good enough and we can actually keep manipulating the conditions, but it's not going to work forever. <laughs> and it is, of course, the experience of meditators again and again. You know? Oh, you know, the first retreat, the two retreats that I went on was so blissful. Why can't I do that? You know, anymore. Well, lucky that you can't, because it means you have to become real. You're actually going to have to work, you know, through where you're creating the suffering, rather than just hiding somewhere. So, and that's already that's the fourth step. You said training yourself. I train myself with the in and the out breath to calm the entire body or the body conditioner. Again, body conditioner. That would be one of the the ways which literally the Buddha characterized the breath. Maybe that's what he meant, the breath. But again, it's obvious if you calm the breath, then the body gets calm as well, isn't it? And then the mind gets calm, and then wonderful things might start to happen. <laughs> and so that's the first section on first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of breathing. And then it's followed so by several other sections which, which give different applications for this, different ways of being attentive to the body and reaching out into different forms of contemplations, particular contemplations. Before I mention them, also one thing that's 
interesting and important to look at and contemplate is all of those sections, in fact, throughout all the sections of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and have a refrain at the end, which gives so, some general instructions about how to do this and what to do with this kind of practices. And the refrain says, lists things like, you know, while you're doing this practice, as you're doing this practice, you contemplate um, a rising of phenomena in the body and you contemplate ceasing of phenomena in the body. And then you contemplate both arising and ceasing in the body, both internally and externally. That's, and that it repeats that kind of thing with any kind of practice. Points, obviously, to one of the things when we talk about investigation, you know, which is an important aspect of practice. Remember Ajahn Chah talking about the two legs? A bit of what I've, most of what I've said so far about using mindfulness of breathing is about calming the mind, isn't it? And sometimes that's enough. You know, as I said yesterday, sometimes just if the mind gets calm and there's wakefulness at the same time, it's like the water in a lake, you know, becoming calm, it becomes more clear and we start to see things. Things just appear within that space. You know, we see things differently. That can be sometimes enough for insights to arise. You know, sometimes it's useful to guide our contemplation more actively. So that's the, the second leg in meditation, you know, stabilizing the mind and then using the stability for investigation. Investigation can just can mean in a coarser way sometimes to think deliberately something through. It can mean just to be conscious of our questions, dropping conscious question into that space of quiet of meditation. It can mean just to set up our intention that we are interested to actually understand, to see, to know. It makes quite a difference and it's quite important therefore to every now and then become clear about what our intention is in our practice. Because sometimes we are not. But there always is some intention behind it. But the kind of intention that we have will direct our effort, consciously or unconsciously. It will influence what we actually pay attention to and how and what we do with what we're picking up. Like if you have the conscious or unconscious intention to just become calm, well, that, that's going to direct, of course, your effort in a particular kind of way, isn't it? If your intention is you want to understand something, well, you're looking at your experience in a different way. You know, something coming up, then it's not just a disturbance to your calm. No, it's something that, oh, it's actually interesting because you want to understand, you know, why is this disturbing me? You, know? you, don't, so you don't necessarily always have to think about it a lot, but you're just going to have to set up the intention. You know? So, and this offers a particular kind of classic, basic um, thing to pay attention to, according to the Buddha, is impermanence, isn't it? The rising and cease, ceasing of phenomena, which is something we know of, course about to a certain extent in, in, uh, theoretically but of course we can use the space of formal meditation or paying more close attention to also look at that kind of aspect of our reality a bit more closely and we might get see different aspects of it or get more exquisite kind of appreciation of that or might just hit home in a different way you know? so it can be quite an important uh, observation and we really see we are much less likely to put down the stakes you know, of our claim for territory and control in our experience when we realize that the ground is not solid but it's quicksand you know, it's moving, shifting all the time you know? it does you know, change, could change your attitude to your experience radically so arising and ceasing internally, externally supposedly I guess the most simple explanation would just be well in our own body which is what we probably most focus on in meditation but obviously we can also observes that in the, what we usually refer to as the, the apparent kind of outside reality, isn't it? In other bodies, it applies, of course, everywhere, anywhere.
And then the last bit is interesting also then says, or you just set up mindfulness of the body just to the extent to know that the body is there for the purpose of, what was it, sustained attention and mindfulness or something like that. And so that's, that points to the fact that also we don't always have to do something, you know, calm down the mind or finding out something, investigate, and, you know, uh, you know sometimes we are, this, you know, we have this, you know, <laughs> you know, what do I do next, you know, my technique, and, and then I investigate here, and then this step of, of insight, and then now I have this insight, which one is the next one I have to move towards, you know, what, what should I look for, you know, how should I investigate. Sometimes it's okay to just set up mindfulness to the extent to know there's a body here and just rest in that, and just, what's wrong with just being there, <laughs> being aware, you know, where's the problem, no? So that's, an, I think, an interesting, also relaxing suggestion, and then also if you read it carefully, it says, there is a body here, no? It doesn't say, there's my body here, no, it says, there is a body here, so that's interesting, also to look at that, so there's obviously another and a suggestion to watch out for another one of the three basic characteristics of all experience that the Buddha recommended contemplating. Dukkha, which we talked about a lot yesterday. Impermanence, which I just mentioned. And the ownerlessness of experience, to put it one way. Anatta, not self. No? So there's a body. No, noticing there's a body. And what happens if in there comes the assumption, this is my body, what does it actually mean? No, the sense of idea of ownership, how that affects me. And to look at this aspect, how much is it actually my body? How much control do I actually have over the body? No, we can recognize we have some control, but if you look a bit closer, it doesn't take us long to find out that our control is very limited. No? I think Ajahn Sumedho once on which we suggested, quite humorously suggested, if you want to find out, contemplate anatta you know, in terms of the body, just set up the intention that from now on, I'm never going to go to the toilet anymore. It's going to the toilet is very coarse, you know, experience is not very spiritual and refined. And now that I'm a spiritual being, you know, this, you know, having to go to the toilet, and that's kind of humiliating. I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm a spiritual person. It's not going to work, isn't it? The, the body's got its own agenda, and it's going to be stronger than you, isn't it? You don't have control. And then in the end, it says something like without concern for the world, like aversion or, or longing for the world. You know, that's, of course, ideally... <laughs> You know, there's this, this sense of a certain sense of attachment, so that we're just observing rather than being involved in those things with our concerns, you know, wanting or, or wanting to push away. Which, in reality, of course, where we are at, usually it's just something we can aim for, isn't it, as an ideal. But it's probably not something that we experience quite like that. So, and then it goes through those other steps. The, the next one is basically extending it to the various postures. As we mentioned, that's obviously pointing out the fact that we cannot, meditation, mindfulness of the body is not just about sitting cross-legged, as in fact the sutta kind of starts out, but you know, standing, walking, sitting, lying down. And in fact, any posture the body is in, we can contemplate the body. And then it goes through various, mentions various activities throughout the, the day. So basically suggesting the fact that we can, can and if you want to get benefit from that, you know, should pay attention to the body throughout our daily activities. Mm -hmm. mm. And that also, of course, makes clear the point also that, that I think that the, the need to moderate or find the right, yeah, the right kind of quality of how we pay attention 
nor if with sitting meditation, again, sometimes it can cause a certain kind of tension through intensification. Also, you know, you think, like, well, now I'm doing, now I'm becoming spiritual, I'm doing my meditation practice, I'm setting down, and now I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort out my meditation, whatever, or my problems, or I'm, I'm going to get into samadhi, I'm going to do this meditation now, and we, and we try to grab the brass, you know, and hang on to it, and not let go of it. <laughs> and maybe if we do that, usually we end up with a headache. It's something that can easily happen to us when we sit down intentionally, particularly in this restricted posture, and just sitting down and getting down to it, you know, kind of thing. Now, we think you can't so easily do that during your daily activities, isn't it? If you, because if you do it, you, you, you fall over your own feet, isn't it? Because you're so focused, you can't actually relate to anything anymore. No, so obviously, there's what this is the quality also that, that mindfulness offers. It's not; it's an element of concentration because it's about non-distractedness of being with something and remembering. Sati originally, originally meant remembering and you know, remembering your meditation object. But the suggestion, I think, usually is if you like a soft focus, so it has a range. It's being in the present, but it has a wide enough scope to actually be able to take in anything in your present experience that is actually relevant for your purpose of what you're, of what you're doing, what your aim is or whatever. So the suggestion then is with being aware of the body, more like in the sense like a float anchor. No? So you're, you're connected, stay connected to the body so that your mind doesn't get carried away by daydreaming or emotions that arise. You have something to, to stand on the ground, to stand on something to refer back to you. So you're grounded in the body, but you're not squeezing you know, your body with your attention. You're trying to squeeze something out of it, some inside or something. <laughs> you're just you're staying grounded in the body. Mm. Then the last three are more specific contemplations. The, the next one is the one on the four elements. Uh, contemplating the body in terms of the four elements. That's a particular way of perceiving the body. And the four elements or basic concepts, if you like, of, of physics at the time of the, the Buddha in India, and, and the same as actually the ancient Greeks had, kind of fire, water, earth, and air. On a more experiential level, if we look at the body as a direct experience through physical sensations, it's just a way of, instead of looking at the body through some image of the body, an idea of my body, and just picturing it somehow, just going to the sensations directly and seeing them in terms of, of what these four elements might mean in our direct experience. And I think usually what's suggested there is earth is about solidity. No. I think bones, for example, you know, solidity, the fact you know, that there's structure and you feel the pressure you know, of the weight of the body, it says solidity. A fire, of course, is, is, is fairly obvious too. Temperature, so heat or the lack of it, you know, and the, the difference of you know, how we feel warm or cold or, or what, whatsoever. Air usually is, is uh, translated as movement. Uh, as a direct example, of course, would be the breath, you know, the movement with the breath, but usually it's translated as movement, any kind of movement that we experience in the body. And water as cohesion, perhaps the most subtle, but makes sense again uh, if you look at the body and think, just thinking of the fact of the body is 70% water and how that manifests in the 
particularly in the soft tissues and the connectivity of it all, the, the smoothness, you know, trying to get a sense of, you know, what the wateriness of the body does to it. You know, how would it be if there wouldn't be any water? If you just think just of this skeleton sitting, it'd be very kind of hard and stiff, isn't it? So the subtlety and the connectivity of a body that's alive. And then five and six, the last ones. The fifth one is the 32 parts, also called in Pali Asuba meditation, most literally and best translated as, think, as looking at the unattractive aspects of the body. Suba means attractive, beautiful, and A is kind of a negation, so not beautiful or unattractive. And so 32 parts, well, this is just a list that the, that the Buddha used. Of course, we, we can look at the body in terms of many more parts if you want to. So look at, the, at what's, what is actually the body uh, by looking and saying in that sense it would be kind of visualizing or seeing in the different parts of the body on its own, which to most of us, most generally, probably isn't particularly appealing or we feel it's more kind of unattractive. Um, I mean, we're all different, but that seems to work like that for most people. And I think there's two purposes to that. Uh, one, to a certain extent, to cut or through our attachment, identification with the body, kind of digging a bit at the foundations of that. And the other one is, of course, to counterbalance the passion that we can easily develop for the body. The naturally, I mean, usually we are biologically, we tend to be wired to at least intermittently find the bodies very attractive, you know, a sexual attraction. If that wouldn't be the case, um, the human species wouldn't be here anymore, and we wouldn't be particularly propelled to procreate, I guess, if there wouldn't be any attraction. No? So that tends to come naturally, at least every now and then. So the Buddha did teach this asuba meditation, particularly to his monks and nuns, or for the obvious reason, because if you're practicing celibacy, sexual passion isn't particularly useful. It can become quite a problem. So it's, of course, to balance it out you know, that as a tool, a particular tool to cool down sexual passions. And obviously, it's that can become quite useful also to lay people at times, <laughs> uh, not just to monks and nuns. But uh, also further than that, it's because of something interesting to generally balance our natural biases around the body. You know? And we have to know again for ourselves how our mind works around those things and, and, and if and how this tool might be useful for us. Some people like this practice and teach it very much. I often find, uh, often particularly with lay people, there's a quite a bit of uneasiness around it or, or resistance to it. Or I feel that often we have it rather maybe sometimes a bit tense or contrived, not very relaxed relationship to the body and even to, to our passions one way or the other. It goes kind of both ways. We can get very infatuated and passionate and unrestrained, you know, in our sexual impulses and our attraction. But then also this is almost kind of balanced on the other side with a very strong sense of aversion to, say, just not looking at a, you know, at what we find is an attractive body, but maybe just looking at the liver on its own <laughs> something, you know. Which is, of course, also maybe natural to a certain extent, you know, that we feel rather a bit squeamish about um, bodies that are damaged or... No, it's not something that we are not, maybe not by nature, maybe and also we are not wired to find attractive. That's understandable. But I find that usually um, 
as modern kind of Westerners, we are not very grounded in our relationship around that because also illness, sickness, and death particularly is very much sanitized these days and, and kept away from most of us. I mean, I don't know about you. I think the first time I saw a dead body, I was already 20 years old or something, and it was only very fleeting, and I'm not even sure because it was in a road accident, and, and, and I only caught a glimpse. I didn't know whether the, the woman was actually dead, I imagine. But actually, proper, actual real corpse, I didn't see until I'd been a monk. And actually spending a night with a corpse in a vigil, and not only seeing a corpse, but smelling a corpse. You know, it's a different experience. I mean, these days, um, for most people, we are quite removed, actually, from that reality. And so it sometimes, unfortunately, often gets pre presented actually also in a way that feeds into our often strong aversion and fear of our own body as a body, you know, as a living corpse, if you like. You know, the fact that we all have got a skeleton inside, you know, just to, and to just notice how useful that actually is to have a skeleton, isn't it? <laughs> but we feel slightly uneasy, you know, the fact that there's a, you know, no, there's a skeleton in there. I don't like skeleton. <laughs> And all the other things inside, you know, if you take the skin off. Um, I recently stayed with a friend, a Buddhist friend, who said she had a knee replacement. And she said she had this local anesthesia so that she could actually watch the operation, how they were doing the knee. Now, I just saw an, a pictures of a knee operation and it's gruesome, you know. I, I saw, wow, I mean, I mean, that woman had something going for her. I mean, I was surprised that actually allowed her, you know, and she didn't seem to be, she just thought it was very interesting. You know? <laughs> but that, that needs a very balanced kind of mind. It's important to remember because sometimes it's presented in this way, it's not about the repulsiveness of the body. That's not what the, what the party says. It just says unattractiveness or not beautifulness. And so it's, it's, it's about a balance. You know, because you know, the, the thing is, we, often, we, we tend to go from one passion to the other, passion, passionate infatuation with the body, and then, you know, if you see um, an open corpse, it goes into passionate aversion and, and, and disgust. What the Buddha was pointed out, that the body in itself, whether it's, whether it's actually in what we would call perfect shape or whether it's actually half rotten, it's not neither disgusting nor beautiful, it's just the body. No. The disgust or the, the attraction is what we add onto the experience. No. So the image that the Buddha gives to illustrate that, that meditation is actually a farmer who has a bag of beans and opens a bag of beans and so he looks inside and there are mung beans and kidney beans and black-eyed beans and, and I don't know what, soya beans and different kinds of beans and so he, he sorts them as, oh, this is this kind of bean and that is that kind of bean and so in the same way, in your mind you open up your body and say, well, there's a liver and there's a heart and there's blood, and there's pus, and there's <laughs> and muscles, and tendons, and all this kind of thing. So notice that I think it's deliberate. The, the image that the Buddha gives is a neutral image. There's nothing disgusting about beans. Oh, they should be very clean and, and, and neutral. And so the Buddha, usually what he aims for, is actually the middle way. It's not about passionate infatuation. It's not about the passion of disgust. It's not about either grasping at or rejecting aversion is to find actually the middle ground. It's this passion, equanimity. 
And it's very interesting in that context. See that there's uh, suttas where Anuruddha, one of the eminent disciples of the Buddha, talks about the benefits of, now I don't remember whether you said of practicing Anapanasati, I think it is, or the Four Foundation of Mindfulness, in the end it does the same. He said, well, having accomplished this practice, what it actually led him to, one of the benefits was to be able to see the attractive as attractive and the unattractive as unattractive, as well as the attractive as unattractive and the unattractive as attractive. But I think what it points to is exactly the fact that you realize that attraction or unattraction is what we add to the experience. The, the body in itself is just the body. No. So attraction and unattraction is what we're doing. And if we actually really accomplish this practice, it means we have actually gained the independency of mind that it's not actually the external experience that dictates whether we are going to be repulsed or attracted or whatever. Our mind states are not determined by it. We can actually decide. We can actually see either side in it. And that's a freedom of mind. No? Then it becomes obvious why, as a spiritual practice, the Buddha recommended we work on the looking at the unattractive side. You know, rather, of course, we're looking at the attractive side. It thus leads, of course, to, to passion or infatuation, which doesn't help necessarily with contemplation. But it's also not, of course, to go all over onto the aversion side. It is something that can, of course, happen you know, if you're a bit squeamish about the body. So it's a practice we want to be quite careful, actually, about. But it can be a very useful, powerful practice to find that middle ground um, of dispassion. And then the last one are the cemetery contemplations, just contemplations of, of a dead body and its, its increasing decay. And some of the middle stages of decomposure, of course, can be quite gruesome as well in the description of it. But again, it's interesting that the last ones are about you know, there just being white bones left and then the bones going to dust and there's nothing being left anymore. So it's, there's this peace at the end of it, isn't it, of just emptiness. You know? Ajahn Suchito, who, who told me a story about that, which, which I found quite powerful and interesting, when he, when he was in Tibet, he said, where they do um, this guy burials, they call them, isn't it? And he witnessed one of those. He was sitting there meditating <laughs> and then the sky burial happened, so there was this guy, so they were carrying a corpse on a stretcher. And the corpse was just looked like somebody's asleep, basically, isn't it, on the, on the stretcher. And then, as the sky burial goes, the guy would come with a machete and would hack into this body. That is because sky burial is all about the vultures coming, finishing off the corpse. And this hacking it actually up, of course, makes it easier for the vultures to to eat the corpse. So he saw this, and the next thing, the vultures, when the, when the people disappeared, the vultures would descend, and it was just a cl cloud of vultures. And he said something like, I don't know, five minutes, or something like 10 minutes, all the vultures disappeared, and there was nothing left. And he said it was just such a powerful perception. And you're seeing, first, they see still this body, which we usually saw attached to, like this is me, I'm the body. And there's one of these, the body coming, that you still see, it almost looks like this, yeah, this person's just sleeping, like the way in the West, uh, you know, a dead person gets kind of prepared and try to make them look as nice as possible, you know, when you look at the, so it's like it's just asleep. And then within five minutes, there's just nothing left. It's just gone. You know, and it's just really, makes you think, well, am I my body? <laughs> and that's what of this contemplation is really about. It's about identification with the body. Just look into that and to, re to remember that our body is also going to disappear. 
on all the problems, all the pains that you have in your knees and you're kind of struggling with now, for sure, in a hundred years' time, it's not going to be, <laughs> it's not going to be going to be a problem anymore for, for any of us. You know?